I do believe that we are absolute revolutionaries and we need to continue to fight and continue to support people who are fighting in that in that battle knowing fully well that you know it, it's tough and knowing fully well that what we do is right as artists Hello and welcome to Arts In, also known as AI, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and I am here today with L. Peter Callender, who is an actor and a director, lives in San Francisco area, but is here in Pinellas County because he is directing Raisin in the Sun at American Stage, Lorraine Hansberry's play Raisin in the Sun. So. Mm. Do you like to be called L. Peter or Peter? Peter is fine. Peter. <laughs> Peter is great. The L is Lear, as in Lear, L-E-A-R, as in King Lear, but um, no, Peter is fine. That's probably hard to carry around, I Lear, know. right? That's why I go by Peter, because I'm a Shakespearean actor as well. So, I, yeah, I just eliminate all the jokes. You know, what's your dad's name, Othello? <laughs> so, Peter Callender, do you come from a theatrical family? I do not. They, they act up occasionally. But, no, I, I am the only one in my very large family that's doing theater. I was born in the West Indies. I was born in Trinidad, West Indies, and I grew up in England and uh, New York. And as with most theater professionals, I think, and I would certainly hope so. It all began for me with the inspiration of a, of a teacher. Barbara Glickenstein was my teacher in sixth grade. I've always loved theater. I mean, when I lived in England, I was in glee clubs and I did little scene things, but she invited us to uh, Broadway shows and she took us to off-Broadway shows and then we would do musicals. I started my career doing musicals and we started writing musicals based on other musicals and that got me started in theater. And I started my own theater group in eighth grade wow. at PS80 in the Bronx. We uh, went to the principal and asked for a drama teacher not just an English teacher that wanted to do theater. And we got a very inspirational man, Gregory Kammerer, who was a professional director at the time, came in and worked with us. And I started doing major roles in musicals. And then I got auditioned for uh, Performing Arts High School. So, so that's pretty young to be so self-directed. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I was so inspired by the plays that we saw. I mean, basically, lots of musicals. But I was so inspired. I sat there in the dark and forgot myself. I forgot my life. I forgot my uh, friendships. I forgot everything. I was so enthralled by what I saw on stage. And I, I, have, I have a habit. I started it when I was a young kid. I would get in the theater, and when the lights go down, I would close my eyes. And then when the lights came up, I would open my eyes. And mm -hmm. I was immediately transformed. And I still do that today mm -hmm. as an audience member when I see a show. When the lights go down, I close my eyes. And so that when I open it, I'm in the world of the theater. Mm -hmm. I'm in the world of the show. And I stay there all the time. Even at intermission, I close my eyes right before it goes on and open my eyes again. And I'm in the world. So that was very transformative for me. And then I went to Performing Arts High School, the fame high school that everyone talks about. Fame! And then I went to the Juilliard School after that. Mm -hmm. So that... That teacher, Barbara Glickenstein, really transformed my life. into I was very athletic. I was going to go to another high school to play football or baseball or whatever. But she was inspirational in my life, and I, I bless her every single day. She was an amazing woman. Teachers don't get the credit they deserve. I, I, when I go into schools and I work with, with students, I remind them. I said, that person that stands before you is not just doing a job. That person is doing a, what she or he believes in, and she, he or she believes in each one of you, and uh, deserves that kind of respect. And I, I, I raise teachers up all the time. They, their work is so thankless sometimes, but they don't know how they inspire. And here I am, a, a, a man by the age of <laughs> yeah. um, uh, talking about my sixth grade teacher and remembering her name and remembering what she did for me. Teachers inspire and they should know that. 
You said Glee Club and musicals, but you mentioned a few minutes ago that you were a Shakespearean mm -hmm. actor. So somewhere in there, mm -hmm. there was a transition for you. There was when I got into performing arts high school. And when I got in, I realized, oh my gosh, I'm now going to be an actor. I am now in the the school, the only school in New York, in that region, that 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 did that, that performed, that was the high school of performing arts, mm -hmm. the high school. And I had teachers there that were inspiring, Ra Shine and John Capaletti and Bill Britton and Margaret Kohler. All these teachers were just, just wonderful to me. I would be walking down the hall and my voice and speech teacher would stop me and say, you know, I want you to memorize the first uh, prologue to Henry V and come in with it in two days in class. And I'd be like, sure. And I would go home and I'd find it, you know, my, my complete works. And, you know, for a muse of fire that would extend the brightest heaven of invention, I still know it. And I would memorize it. Work on it, then I would come in and she would tear it apart. <laughs> she would just tear it apart because I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know. I had a good understanding of the text, but the, the presentation of the text is what I needed in most of my life. Ra Shine, again, another teacher who I lift up, um, she sat with me and, and worked with me and was very tough. But I thank her very, very much. So what did she change? What From that work on that particular monologue, mm -hmm. what changed for you? Did, was it something in your thought process? Mm -hmm. Was it something in your heart? All of the above. My, my thinking about Shakespeare changed because she enlightened me about text and tone and delivery and imagery and rhythm, uh, iambic pentameter. She taught me what it means. She taught me, taught me whether how Shakespeare, and I say this to my students every day when I work with them, Shakespeare is still one of the greatest directors in the history of theater and how you can be a bit of an anthropologist as, a, as an actor. You, you dig and dig and dig and dig until you find the essence of the speech or the essence of the monologue, the essence of the scene. So she taught me that and, and she worked with me and she, I would say, you know, oh, for a muse of fire that would extend the brightest heaven of invention. And she would say, well, the word extend, what does that mean? What does the N do in the word extend? And if you were to say that word without holding on to that N a little bit, it doesn't extend as Shakespeare wants it to extend. Wow. That's that. And that I took with me with every bit of text because I knew in my heart that this was important work. I knew in my heart that this this writer who had been around for all those years is still being done. Why? And is still being appreciated. Why? And still being done with professional actors and, and elementary school alike. So I fell in love with Shakespeare at that particular mm -hmm. time. And I knew I understood a lot of the text, but I also felt with her and with my other speech and voice teachers that it wasn't just uh, acting it. It was how do you use the words? How do you present the words purely and beautifully and then learn it that way and then forget that you've learned it that way and just speak it just deliver it and i think that's what she did uh, for me there that's what high school performing arts did although it was just a heck of a lot of fun it was so much fun it was the greatest high school experience ever then i went to juilliard the juilliard school yeah one of the first african-american graduates of the juilliard school by the name of jim moody uh, he was in a class he was in group one i was in, i ended up being in group eight now they're up to group 50 so but he graduated uh, one of the first african-americans to graduate the juilliard school when i say group one group two group three it simply means the first second third fourth up to 50th year of the drama division so he was in group one i was in group eight but he graduated and then taught came to teach at performing arts high school and jim moody was uh, uh, an actor, director, uh, renaissance man, knew everything about everything. He was another inspiration in my life. Very well-spoken, very articulate, very passionate about theater. The kind of the kind of director that spoke with his hands and, and his posture was always 
beautiful and erect. And I, I said, I want to be like that. Mm-hmm. I want to be him when I grow up. And he taught me a lot again. He said, where do you want to go to college? He said, you're going to go to college. And I said, yeah. I said, I want to go to Juilliard. He said, oh, great. You want to st- how hard do you want to study? And I said, kick my you-know-what. And he did. Uh, we worked together, and I got into Juilliard. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the greatest days of my life when I found out that I was offered a full scholarship at Juilliard. I mean, I teach, I write, I'm, I direct, and um, it's all because of this the handful of teachers and people that uh, believed in me in, as a young actor, including my dear mother, who raised me as a single mom and uh, put up with me and uh, supported me and came to see everything I did. And I always say to myself, when I'm directing a show, acting in a show, working with students, teaching, whatever it is, directing, I always say, will my mother be proud? Will my mother be proud? Opening night of, of Jitney, will my mother be proud? Opening night of Joe Turner, will my mother be proud? And that is also, she puts her hand on my back very gently and, and just does that all the time, just pushes me forward, keeps me going, just unabashedly, just sacrificed. The word sacrifice in the, in the dictionary has her picture next to it, and everything I do is for her. Joe Turner's Come and Gone, performed by the American Stage. You directed that. Mm-hmm. When I saw Joe Turner, I felt that I was transformed or transported, but I also felt that the actors were transformed and transported to another place. Something happened for those actors that changed them and changed them at the cellular level. Wow in terms of what they were doing on that stage. I would like to think that's true. Thank you. I, I was blessed with an amazing cast, I must say. And from day one, I spoke to my cast about truth. I spoke to my cast about the life of each character. I went into depth about where they came from, what makes them walk through that door, who their families were, why they spoke the way they spoke, why they walked the way they walked why they had certain repetitions in their life. With Molly, we went back in her life, and why did Molly leave? What what catapulted Molly? Why was she in that boarding house at that time in her life? And I reminded actors about that constantly. I reminded them that, uh, I reminded them about the way they walked, the, the rhythms of their language, and they believed that, and they took that into consideration, not just saying the words, but how they said it, and the rhythm in which they spoke. I always speak about orchestration, that every actor, every character is an instrument in a, in a, in a uh, concert, in a concerto, and they play it fully and completely. I spoke about the language of August Wilson, how that transports the actors and transports the, um, the theater members. As the lights go down, they are in a new world, and I talked about that a lot. So these actors really believed in themselves and believed in what they were doing. And also, I tried to, to tell a story, um, not just by the, the words, also by the movement and gestures. I want to teach it, tell it honestly and clearly. And I, as I said, I was really blessed with an amazing cast and also the lighting. I'm very, very, very passionate about lighting telling a story as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. That is important to me. So it's, it becomes an entire experience for the audience and certainly for the actors. If we could Mm -hmm. um, talk about the character of Harold Loomis Mm -hmm. and the actor who portrayed that role. Mm, Calvin Thompson. I felt that he really pushed the character and himself to the extreme. That what I saw on the stage when he essentially falls apart during his vision. (laughs) As an actor to be in that moment in the way he was, the level of trust that had to be built 
with him and you yes. and with the cast must have been phenomenal. Calvin Thompson is a fine actor. He had played Harold Loomis before. Uh, so I started, I, I said, try to erase all that. It's hard for an actor to do that. Once you play the role before, you have a certain rhythm, you have a certain understanding of, of uh, how you've done it before and um, the, 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 the walk of the character. And I said, let's try to erase all that. And I, I said, let's start with his name. Let's start with his name, Harold Loomis. What's a herald? Loomis, light. What's a herald? Messenger of light. And he was like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And that light bulb uh, catapulted <laughs> him into some of the most vulnerable, uh, strong work he'd ever done as an actor. Because we worked very specifically on, on what is he seeing? How, how does that affect you? Don't just say the lines. See it. And we spent a long period of time taking our time with it. That scene where he explodes when he jumps on the table, then he jumps down and, and Bynum is there with him trying to, to, to cull all this, cleanse him, to, to cleanse him so that he can be refilled with the light. And uh, it, it was earth shattering at times for, for the actor. Uh, there's one rehearsal that he was in tears afterwards. We all were because he went there. He allowed, uh, he allowed his psyche, his soul to be, to be entered by this character. And I tell you, you said there was a lot of trust. Again, I praise the cast because everybody standing around him was beaming that strength to him every single night. And from that, we got a performance that was real, that was honest, that was, that was vulnerable and classy and memorable as you as we sit here talking about it this was a year ago and it it's it still resonates so i think actors of that caliber uh, really open themselves up and and try to empty the vessel of their of their being in a role like that and and calvin again was just phenomenal just phenomenal in the role and i always i i i really try to get let my actors experience things on their own i i, I give them hints and, and a, a bit of uh, some levels to go, and I don't I don't bombard them with stuff. I just one thing at a time, so they can layer it and understand it. So, what kind of preparation do you do as a director? With Joe Turner, I I saw the play uh, twice, and I enjoyed it twice. But it, it, there were certain characters that weren't memorable to me. For example, Molly. I didn't remember Molly in the show. I remembered Seth. I remembered Bertha. I remembered Loomis, but other characters were not. So I wondered why. And for me, I read the play every day and I read it out loud. I play all the characters. Some of my cast members make fun of me, but I do. And then, of course, I go back and I, and I, and I think and I try to break it down. With Joe Turner, I, I took it as a biblical story, a story about Jesus and his disciples. And when I brought that up to the cats, when I when I started working with that, and I would read certain biblical passages about the disciples and and the Bible talking about um, uh, Jesus walking the streets with his disciples, and uh, someone would come up to him and talk, and that person might become a disciple and follow him. And what happens to that disciple if that disciple were to break off or or lose faith in 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 the Christ figure? What happens with that? And I then I read the play with that in mind. And it made a lot more sense that that Harold Loomis was a disciple that lost faith because he was captured and taken and taken as a slave by Joe Turner. So with that in mind, I read the play again and I read certain Bible scriptures and I made certain notes. And then I took a lot of um, Romeo Bearden. I looked at a lot of Romeo Bearden's artwork because August Wilson was inspired by Romeo Bearden. The artist did a piece called a Mill Hand's Lunchbox. And August Wilson took inspiration from that painting to write Joe Turner. 
So I spent a lot of time just staring into that painting. What what did he see? There was a there was a hand. There's a lunchbox. There's a staircase. There's this dark figure sitting at the table. And I realized that's that's where he got that inspiration. Mm. So I spent a lot of time looking at that. Wow. When I talked to my set designers, I wanted part of that painting as part of the set piece. And my gosh, Scott Cooper, one of the most brilliant set designers I have ever worked with. <laughs> Bar nice. none. Bar none. Joseph Oshry, the lighting designer, who is, who is again lighting Raisin in the Sun, some of the best artists I've ever worked with on stage, created the exact set that I envisioned in my mind. They did that for Jitney as well. This is my third season with the company. So all that preparation, all that reading, all that listening, all that research, and I come in full for my day, first day of rehearsal. I get here early and I read the play again and again. I make copious notes. And then I see my actors one at a time. And I start envisioning them and I start talking with them, just saying hello, just talking. And I hear their voice and I watch them walk around. And I'm already thinking about, I see this person does this, this person. And then I start taking that in. So just a quick question. Uh-huh. So the cast is in place when you arrive oh, as yes. the director. You don't cast it. Well, I see I see videos and I do make recommendations mm-hmm. and I, I tell them yes yes no maybe so let's see this actor again give this actor this direction so he or she can come back and read again and so on. So you're but involved in the process. I am involved in the process absolutely. Oh Got yes it. yes. With Jitney, I brought uh, three actors out of San Francisco. With Joe Turner, um, I did not. One actor came in late because we had to release an actor who was unhappy with the process. So I brought another actor in from San Francisco and he did an amazing job in the show. Is that the actor who played? Bynum? Who played Bynum, yes. Yeah. yeah, oh my God. He was good. He also was in Invisible Hand. I don't know if you saw that. Um, yeah, he was just Mujahid Abdul Rashid, amazing actor and one of my dearest friends. He came in four, four days before we opened. Literally got off the plane and we made a phone call and we got together and we started talking about Bynum and talking about the rhythms of the of the, of the piece and talking about how Bynum speaks and his walk and his, his, his magic and what, what makes him bind them, bind them, binding people. He's a binder of people. What does that mean? And how does that manifest itself in his walk, in his costume elements? And Mujahid instantly started transforming his tone and his body. And he started suggesting things that he might wear. And I said, okay, that's it. Mm-hmm. When, a, when an actor starts talking about what kind of shoes am I going to wear? And what, mm-hmm. I think I want to have a little pouch with something in it. I think a, a colorful vest. I'm like, yeah great. And he was immediately involved in the creation of the character. And that's when I knew he is connected to this character. And now you're working on Raisin in the Sun. Now Lorraine Hansberry's Raisin in the Sun. One of the right. best plays ever written. I mean, again, Shakespeare, Chekhov, James Baldwin, Pirandello, Lorraine Hansberry. I mean, they all they all fit into this classic realm of, of world theater, in my view. Uh, she died way too young. I, I could just imagine what she would have accomplished had she lived to a ripe old age. What could she have accomplished in this world? But A Raisin in the Sun, of course, the first black playwright on Broadway, the first black director on Broadway, Lloyd Richards, a history-making show as soon as it opened on Broadway in 1959. Beautiful play. Family, South Chicago, 1950, dealing with issues of racism, dealing with issues of family struggle, dealing with issues of dysfunction, dealing with uh, the death of the patriarch, the recent death of the patriarch, dealing with regentrification back then. And also the playwright prophesying what black life would be, what the, the black people, even uh, uh, white people in, in 2018 would be experiencing. She talks about in that play that she wrote all these years ago. And it's, it's, it still resonates. It's still very poignant. It's still very relevant. 
And I think what she highlighted in that play is that we we are all alike. Black, white, tall, short, skinny, gay, straight, whatever it is, we are all alike. We have struggles. We have family issues. We have demons. We have dreams. And sometimes those dreams are deferred. Sometimes those dreams do explode. Sometimes they do fester like a sore and run. Sometimes they do melt in the sun or, or wrinkle in the sun. It, 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 we all have those dreams. And if we don't follow them or if we if we if we come across a, a wall a barrier if we just fall fall on our knees and turn around then that dream would never be realized and she's telling us to, to fight for your dreams and push forward and sometimes you may have to change a dream change the way a, a change an angle but keep moving forward and i think that's what that's what this play is is primarily about you pulled out your Bible mm -hmm. as you were preparing for Joe Turner. Mm -hmm. So is there a similar reference point for you with Raisin? Mm -hmm. Yes, um, Raisin in the Sun written by Langston Hughes. So I read a lot of Langston Hughes poetry, which of course Lorraine Hansberry would have done. I read a lot of um, Paul Lawrence Dunbar poetry, which Lorraine Hansberry would have done. Paul Lawrence Dunbar being one of the first black poet laureates of the country who was actually invited to President McKinley's inauguration. Wow. Um, he wrote a number of beautiful pieces of poetry, a body of work, just beautiful stuff, very lyrical poems. But he also wrote what is called fractured language. Um, we wear the mask that grins and lies, it hides our face and shades our eyes, this debt we pay to human guile. Beautiful lyrical poems about black life and black experiences. But he also wrote what is called the crooked language, you know, Gwen, um, quit that noise, Miss Lucy, put that music book away. What's the use of you keep trying? If you practice too well, you gray, you can't start no notes of flying. Very broken, very beautiful lyrical mm. pieces. And when uh, President McKinley invited him to, the, to his inauguration as the national poet, McKinley wanted him to do one of those broken language poems. And Paul Lawrence Dunbar was so disappointed. He wanted to do one of his lyrical, beautiful oh, wow. pieces. But McKinley uh, said, no, 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 give, you know, give us one of those, uh, the Southern and I want to hear one of them things that talk like this. And um, he did it reluctantly and wow. was very, very That's sad about it. It was very heartbreaking for him. So um, I played Lawrence, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, so I know, I know a lot about his life. Beautiful play uh, years ago. But so I, I, I read a lot of those poems. I read a lot of uh, James Baldwin, as, as Lorraine Hansberry would have. So I, I immersed myself in that rhythm of, of that poetry. I did a lot of research in Chicago, 1950, a lot of photographs, black and white photographs about black life in 1950s Chicago. And of course, I read the play over and over and over again as well. I thought about my mother raising me as a single mother. How did that manifest in her behavior? How did she treat me when things were going well? How was she treated when things were rough in my life? The struggles that I put her through. So thinking about my mother, I try to talk to my actors with that kind of sensibility. So walk us through, if you would, that first meeting. Some of the actors I, 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 I know know you already, mm -hmm. they worked with you, like Fanny Green. Fanny Green was the, actually the, let me think for a second, the only actor in the show that knew me before this. Okay, yeah. so you had one person you knew, everybody else. Mm -hmm hadn't met you nope people you know come in they're probably excited mm -hmm. maybe a little nervous mm -hmm. whatever what was the first thing that you said other after hello <laughs> <laughs> i showed them the award i won last year no it was given to me first rehearsal because it was it was the award was handed out a few months before and they kept it here when i brought it first rehearsal it was presented to me in, on the table and, and they were like oh my gosh look at that um so that helped a little bit i'm sure <laughs> But I, 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 I'm very, um, I'm very silly. I may seem very serious to guys, but I'm very, I'm very silly, and I, I, I try to make folks laugh and make them feel like a family. 
I I ask about their lives. I talk about. Um, I don't even go to the to the text for the first almost the first hour of rehearsal. I ask people to check in and talk about themselves, talk about what brought them here, um, what their what their life. I can read a bio, I can read um, uh, a resume, but I, I try to talk with the actors first and hear their voices and hear their rhythms. And then I segue slowly into the life of the play. And they would say something like, you know, um, I have an aunt who spoke like this. And I said, oh yeah, tell me what, you know, imitate your aunt for me. Let me hear what your aunt. I said, that sounds like Mrs. Johnson in the, in the play. Or that sounds like Bobo. Or that sounds like Walter Lee. And he said, yeah, that's, Walter Lee and I see the actor playing Walter Lee make a few notes on his script and that begins the process. I try to learn more and more and more about the actors at the table. I, I take mental notes. I look around and see how they sit, see how they sit when they get uncomfortable, see how they cheer up, when they see how, hear how they laugh, hear, realize when do they sit forward when there's a conversation at the table, when do they sit back? And I take all those mental notes and I try to work with them accordingly uh, to their rhythms and their styles and I just try to get to know them. I do what's called the check-in as well. Um, I learned that from a director in Marin uh, Theatre Company, Jason Minadakis. You do a check-in to see how people are before rehearsal starts. So when do you as a director know that the play has gelled, know that it's moved from external performance, a presentation to an ensemble living in that true new world that mm. they've essentially closed their eyes to use your mm-hmm. conversation from mm-hmm. earlier, closed their eyes on the world that they're in and opened their eyes on the when I see that they are not um, stopping as much, that they're not, when I see the actors start flowing through the piece, picking up, picking up props as if they've used that prop for years and years and years. You know, when you, when, when you, if you have a pet, you, you grab your pet's leash, put the pet on the leash, and take the pet out. That is uh, choreographed during rehearsal. But then when that when that leash becomes secondary to you, mm-hmm. when I see the actors, for example, Fanny, who I adore, she had so much business to do in the play with feeding people, putting plates on the table, and she did it very slowly. But when, I re- when she started looking at the actors and started doing it without even thinking, as if she's been doing it all her life, then I see, okay, it's gelling. It's absolutely, when doors open and close, when people come downstairs, when actors are no longer adjusting their hair or adjusting their costumes as they work, then I know they're, not be, they're no longer characters, they're people. And that's when I see everything coming together. Is she sitting, is she sitting with her legs crossed or is she sitting with her knees crossed? This is very 1911. Women sitting with their knees, with their ankles crossed and right, knees together, right. right? So if I see the actor doing this normally now, I say, okay, that's good. It's happening. So the transformation has begun. They're taking on some attributes of the historical epic that That's the correct. play is taking That's place correct. In. And I don't always, I, I think we need to step out of our contemporary bodies and our contemporary minds, our co- contemporary thinking when you're doing a play such as Joe Turner or even Raisin in the Sun. We must forget about how, how men treat women. We, we must forget about the, the Me Too's because we aren't there yet. So right. we, have to, we have to say, look, this is how women were treated in 1950. So when Beneath It talks about I am going to be a doctor that is huge right a young black woman 1950 talking about I, I'm going to be a doctor and Walter Lee rightfully so says no why don't you just be a nurse and a, a nurse and shut up so I, I, I constantly remind my actors that we are living in a world that was tentative that was violent that was scary and that wasn't always very welcoming and you must understand when, when Mr. Lindner comes into the room, Mr. Lindner is a white man from Clybourne Park. That was the first time a white man has ever entered your house. What is that kind of experience like? What? How do you deal with that?
right now there's a big discussion about race and mm -hmm. racism and a lot of it i believe was stimulated by some of the comments and some of the activities of our current president current resident mm -hmm. you know when you were describing the 50s it seemed like yes and that's also how it feels right now yeah i i, I don't think much has changed honestly i think there's a new sheen on it i think it's wearing different clothing uh, maybe some some new shoes, but it's the same person walking in those shoes. America hasn't hasn't become as enlightened as people think we have. It's the same edge. It's just a longer blade. Yes, it's even sh it's sharper, but you know it's the same. It's it's just a longer blade, mm -hmm. and the blade is reaching out to more and more people, and it's more dangerous. With Barack Obama, yes, it was the first black president and the first black family in the in the first family in the White House and was probably the, the, the most incredibly peaceful, calm, proudest eight years that this country has ever had internationally. Nationally, he's, he's still a black man. Uh, I say to my friends sometimes when I travel around the world, when I go to Paris or London, I'm an American. When I'm in America, I'm a black man. And I think we are still being relegated to that that place in this country. We are still black people. We're not, we're not Americans, we're still black people. Uh, that's what brought the current uh, resident of the United States. I, I don't use, I don't put the P in front of it. That was, that's what brought him into power. The, the anger and the hatred and the dismissal of who we are as a people. And if if Raisin in the Sun were done ten years ago, five years ago, we would still be feeling the same anxieties. People would sit in that audience and say, "My gosh, things have not changed at all." So, for you as a director, as an artist. Does that sharpen your role? I think so. I think Paul Robeson spoke about the artist, the artist as a revolutionary. And I think most black artists who feel strongly about his or her work feel that we are revolutionaries in some way. We are trying to tell the stories that are written about us. We are encouraging new playwrights to tell, to chronicle, as August Wilson did, as Shakespeare did, the, 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 the ups and downs and the turmoils of our time. I embrace that as an artistic director of a theater company in San Francisco, the African American Shakespeare Company. I embrace that as a father. I've got a 22-year-old child. I embrace that as a, as a as a friend, as a as a leader, as a teacher, as a director. I embrace all that. I do believe that we are absolute revolutionaries, and we need to continue to fight and continue to uh, support people who are fighting in that in that battle. Um, knowing fully well that, you know, it, it's tough and knowing fully well that what we do is right as artists. And going back to Lorraine Hansberry, I think she wrote this play outlining that we are more alike than we are not. We all have families that we love. We all have dysfunctional people in our family. We all have dreams and we are more alike than we are different. I'm still primarily an actor. I've worked with, thank God, and thank my mother, and thank my teachers, but I've worked with some of the most amazing directors in the country. I've been on Broadway, and I've gleaned from these people a language of theater. The way theater inspires, the way theater moves, the way a light change can bring a mood to the audience, the way a gesture, a stepping forward or a stepping back of an actor on stage, the stage picture, how that moves an audience. I was inspired to look at art and see the positioning of bodies and figures. And I would go to museums. A lot of inspiration is from art. And I would look at paintings and see the juxtaposition of people. And how does that person over there, looking at a child, 
that's down a small child that's down left of a of a painting why is that person interested what is that person looking at when there's all that stuff going on and how does that make me feel right so i try to build stage pictures very clearly as to what people are looking at what people are feeling and i had a director long ago uh, he said because i had when i was a young actor i had very few lines in this play but he said uh, uh, peter it's it's amazing and i wanted to tell you this he said, whenever I'm looking at you, and in this scene we just rehearsed, you had no lines. But whenever I looked at you, I knew what was going on in the entire scene. So what motivated you to make the leap into being a director? Um, I was asked. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I was. I, I just, and uh, Stephanie Goulart, my, my dear friend and colleague, uh, the artistic director of American Stage, called me when, uh, texted, actually messaged me on Facebook saying that she'd been following my career and um, she'd seen me do some things on stage and uh, as artistic director of the African-American company, she's been following my career. Would you be interested in coming out to direct Jitney? I'd never directed nationally before. And I thought, my God, oh my gosh. I'm about to go to American Stage Company and direct August Wilson's Jitney. I'd performed August Wilson before, I'd studied his works before, but there I was and I wanted to do the best I possibly could. And I worked very hard and I got here and I realized this is going to be cool. And as an actor myself, I'm an actress director. I, 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 don't, I don't really sit, you know, with the music stand, with my fingers crossed, with my glasses down to my nose and say, move here, move there, move there. No, I, I, I try to give them a strong base from which to work and then let them build from there. Sherry Young um, graduated from American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. When she graduated ACT as a young a female performer, she looked around and said, you know what, there isn't anything for black actors, no theater that catered to African-American actors, to do the classics, to do Shakespeare, Ibsen, Chekhov, Pirandello, my gosh, Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller. So she formed what is now the African-American Shakespeare Company. When I first moved to the Bay Area, I was brought in to do Major Barbara, Shaw's Major Barbara at Berkeley Repertory Theater. Three weeks into rehearsal, I heard about the African-American Shakespeare Company, and I went to see a production of Pygmalion, in which Sherry Young played that Liza Doolittle. I thought it was a good production, and I thought, oh, the African-American Shakespeare Company. And I finished that production, I did two more productions at Berkeley Rep, and they kind of dipped into the radar. No one had heard of them. No one knew this place was there. So Sherry Young called me to ask my advice about a, a rehearsal of Comedy of Errors, and she learned about me. And so I went in and worked with the actors, and she loved how I worked with the actors. Suddenly, certain things were brighter. The actors understood more text. And about a month and a half later, she called and said, um, we are looking for an artistic director. <laughs> Will you be happy? Would you join? I was like, yeah, sure. Not knowing exactly what that, you know, what I because I, I mean, I'd worked in a lot of theaters, but artistic director, ooh, sounded sexy and romantic. Then picking plays and reading plays and influencing actors and influencing audiences. So African American Shakespeare Company was formed to hone the craft of young African American actors and, and actors of color in general so that they will get an opportunity, as I did as an actor, to do Shakespeare, to go to Juilliard, to go to, to study at NYU as I did, to go to London and work and do Shakespeare and do all the classics and be trusted with the classics, to learn better speech, to learn better technical way of working on stage, to learn diction and clarity, to learn how to dissect a play, to learn how to dissect a monologue, and then be able to lead a cast as I was given that opportunity as a young actor. So I, I embrace that. Um, I've been the artistic director now for, uh, seven, for seven years. We are now national known mm. as a theater company internationally in some places we, we've won several awards since I've been there so I, I, I think that a, a, the nation as a whole is now is now saying oh 
hmm, African American Shakespeare Company. Sure. Hello, can we talk to you guys? I directed a production of A Cat on a Hot Tin Roof recently at my theater, and there's a woman who saw a production in London with a black cast, saw the Broadway production with a black cast, and then saw our production with a black cast. And she'd never seen the play before. Never seen the play before. So she comes up to me afterwards. She says, I really loved your production. It was just wonderful. It was so clear. And my God, I was so moved. And then she looked me in the eye, and and she was a white woman. And she said, do you think this production could be done with a white cast? (laughs) And I thought, well, I think so. Let's let's look into that. Because I I, I do believe that um, whoever we are, these plays are American plays. It's not about black, it's, it's about the best actor. So thank you for asking about African American Shakespeare Company. AfricanAmericanShakes.org is our website. Check it out, see what we're all about, and um, donate. My suitcase and I will go right to rehearsal. This and that's in San Francisco for Streetcar Named Desire. Go right into it. And then I go into a production of Richard III. I play Richard. I'm really very, very blessed. I get an opportunity to make people laugh and cry. I get an opportunity to inspire, to teach, to help other people in this world. And, and I, I took my lead from my mother, who was an, um, um, a healer, loved working with people, loved teaching also. And um, uh, I think I... I, I Thanks, Mom. And thank you, Peter Callender. This has been a really wonderful conversation. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it, it so much. You're so charming. Thank you. Thank oh. you. Your questions were thoughtful and in-depth, and, and I appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening, and Peter, thank you for being here. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you. This is Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, also known as AI, the Creative Pinellas Podcast. Sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners, visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.